From the American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Durham, this is Due South. I'm Colin Campbell, in for Jeff Tiberi. Today on our North Carolina News Roundup, we're looking ahead to the primary elections next Tuesday. But first, let's take a look back at what happened this week. We are learning that hundreds of Wake County students had either been restrained or secluded this academic year, according to the latest data. It's the uncertainty for students like Gabby that is stressful. And I've just been through so much being at St. Aug. So, you know, it would be really disappointing if things got messed up because of this. Charlotte is bringing back penalties for drinking alcohol in public, but you'll soon be able to drink on the sidewalk as long as it's in Plaza Midwood. As Wake Forest fans rush the court following their big win over the eighth-seeded Blue Devils, Duke star Kyle Filipowski found himself caught in the chaos. Cameras catching the moment someone collided with the seven-foot center, injuring his knee. Those are clips from ABC 11, WRAL, and Good Morning America. Joining us today on the panel to reflect on the last week and look ahead to the primaries here on the North Carolina News Roundup, we have Don Vaughn, Capitol Bureau Chief for the News and Observer, Will Doran, politics reporter for WRAL, Rin Larson, a reporter for the Assembly NC, and Brian Anderson, who's a freelance journalist covering North Carolina politics on the Anderson Alerts newsletter. Welcome, y'all. Thanks for joining the discussion today. Thanks for having us. Good, Good to you. be here. So early voting is wrapping up and runs through 3 p.m. on Saturday. Just a little more time for folks who want to get out there and do that. Uh, any of you guys voting early or wait until primary day on Tuesday? I live in Wake County. This is Ren, and I need to get a sticker, so I'm definitely voting early. Can, can confirm I got my sticker earlier this week. The unicorn is absolutely worth it, and the I voted sticker on Tuesday. Still good to get a sticker. Not a cool sticker, though. Durham used to have really cool voted stickers. So, like, Wake has kind of been behind for a while, so I'm glad they, like, finally stepped up. One reminder for folks who are heading out to vote this year, you're going to need a photo ID to vote. That uh, requirement from a constitutional amendment a few years back uh, is now in place uh, based on where things stand with uh, court lawsuits on that. If you want to know more about that aspect of it, our episode of Due South yesterday included conversations with WUNC reporter Rusty Jacobs and an election official in Durham County. You can listen to that on WUNC.org and wherever you get your podcast. Speaking of the voting process, this week we learned about what not to do when it comes to your voter registration. Brian, you reported on a congressional candidate who failed to use his current address on his registration. What did you find out about 13th District Republican candidate Brad Knott? Yeah, not the best headline in the world if you're a former federal prosecutor either, I might add. Uh, But Brad Knott, like you said, he's running in the 13th Congressional District. And the issue is basically 2010, he registers to vote using his parents' address. In 2014, he buys a home. They're both in Raleigh city limits, but they're different addresses three miles apart from each other. And that would be perfectly fine if you happen to vote at the same precinct. But the problem was they're in different precincts. So you're voting at the wrong voting site for five to six different elections, casting a ballot there. And what's he saying about this? I mean, surely, I mean, I went to vote this week. They asked me my address. I said it out loud. They gave me a form I had to sign that had my address to make sure it was right. How how did he somehow miss that? Well, he called it a clerical error, said... It wasn't something he had been thinking about. And in fairness, I talked to Jerry Cohen, a Wake County Board of Elections uh, member, and he said this is a common issue where people don't update their voter registration the second they move. But it is odd to not update it It for a decade, basically. And so what happens is you go to a voting site and they'll say, give us your name, give us your address, or they'll tell you your address and you'll confirm it. And then you have to sign to attest to that eligibility. And people are saying if you wrongly attest to your eligibility— you could be, uh, it, it could be a felony. 
potentially. Yeah, I mean, does this have any potential of backlash against Nod in this incredibly crowded primary that he's in for the Republican nomination? Or are people not going to see that amid this you know sea of ads that's going on in that race? I mean, it it is hard to com- it is hard to compete with the, uh, with some of these names on the ballot. You have Kelly Daughtry spending two point three million dollars of her own money into her race. Fred Von Cannon two point five nine million dollars. So it's hard to get attention over that. But this headline certainly not good for not. Yeah. Other thing that's going to distract attention away from these other races this weekend, we've got presidential candidates coming to North Carolina this weekend. Donald Trump's going to be in Greensboro tomorrow on Saturday, uh, just a few hours after Nikki Haley uh, is in Raleigh. She's also got a stop planned in Charlotte. Uh, What are you guys on the lookout for uh, this weekend? What are you expecting from uh, these presidential visits? Well, you know, dueling uh, visits here, uh, you know, it's notable that uh, from, you know, what we can tell, uh, Trump seems to have a much bigger uh, venue than Nikki Haley uh, has. I, I don't know yeah, if that— if you're uh, comparing crowd size, which <laughs> candidates often do. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, and I, I, I don't think there's too much uh, suspense in the, in the primary here. I think everyone expects Trump to win. He's been very popular in North Carolina for the, the past few primaries. Um, but, you know, Nikki Haley is making a push for it and, you know, still sticking in the race. Um, and, you know, obviously uh, Kamala Harris is uh, uh, here in Durham as well. Uh, today, actually. And, uh, you know, so the, the Biden campaign uh, making sure it has a presence, even though he is the the only Democrat on the, the ballot for the, the presidential primary. Haley has changed her location. I'm covering it tomorrow. And Haley has changed her location for the event a couple of yeah, different times. Where is times. she having it now? Uh, it wasn't was a very small thing? group hub in downtown down- Raleigh. But... No, I think it's downtown now. Um, I haven't looked this morning, so maybe yeah, it may have changed again. I guess it's, it's, it's now Union Hall inside because of the rain is what they're citing as the change. Yeah, location. I mean that's got to be the optics thing, right? Is they want to make sure it looks like a crowd, even if it's only like fifty or hundred people. Um, and so if you run out too big of a space, it's going to look bad for you, right? Well, I think with Nikki Haley, it's less about does she like have the actual numbers to beat Trump, and more about like what are the actual numbers. So obviously her own state of South Carolina only getting 40% isn't great, but that means 40% of, you know, primary voting Republicans do not want Trump. So that I feel like that's more of like what's the message in the fall that Republicans are sending. And I mean to her credit, it's you know, people you should probably like stick stick things out a little bit and not just take your ball and go home like after the first you know, the first primary. So I'll give her credit for staying in it. Yeah, we're listening to the North Carolina News Roundup here from Due South on WUNC. I'm Colin Campbell, in for Jeff DeBeery, here with a panel of political reporters, Don Vaughn of the News and Observer, Will Doran with WRAL, Ren Larson of the Assembly, and freelance journalist Brian Anderson. Uh, Will, you had a story this week, speaking of uh, the election results, that uh, the results that we're going to see on Tuesday night's primary are going to be a little bit later than usual. What's that all about? Yes, there's going to be a a small delay, maybe about 30 minutes or so. And in the past, as soon as the polls close, the state has always released the early voting numbers. And so, you know, the the second that voting stops, they say, okay, here are the numbers as of early voting. Now we're going to start counting the election day votes. There's a new law that the legislature passed late last year that changes that. And it's going to basically just put a 30 minute, maybe an hour delay on those results. And the actually the idea was to kind of cut down on some conspiracy theories about the elections because just you know by how people tend to vote democrats tend to use early voting more republicans tend to use election day voting more so it always kind of 
seemed as if the state was you know kind of going blue when those first yeah, numbers. Yeah, that first hour you did that. In early returns, Democrats are ahead, and then two hours later, it's like, ah, just kidding, they weren't ahead. Yeah, no, that was a mirage. And so the the intent of this law was to kind of cut down on that and some of the confusion uh, that happened for some voters by seeing those numbers kind of bounce around. Um, but ironically, even though the intent was to stop the conspiracy theories, it is now actually causing more conspiracy theories. Uh, we've seen some posts circulating in conservative social media about, you know, if there's any sort of delay in the results, it means that the state elections officials are cheating and are trying to rig the election. Now, none of these posts ever said, like, how they're going to rig the election or what supposed cheating is going to go on. It's How very... you cheat by late results by half an hour or whatever it may be. Well, and these also... are primaries. It's not a general election Republican versus Democrat. These yeah, are Democrats the versus Board Democrats, of elections Republicans has versus which, Republicans. Which candidates they want in a primary, that's odd. Well, it's also important to note that it's a Republican bill that caused this. So if it's conservatives that are worried about it, look Look at your own party who, you know, put this in the bill. Not these nonpartisan elections officials. Yeah, or the the uh, State Board of Elections, which is a majority Democrats, at least for the moment. Um, they're not they're just following the law that was put towards them. Right. Right. I, I spoke with Karen Brinson Bell, who's the state elections director, and she just is asking for patience uh, with people saying, look, this is what the law says. We're just following the law. You know, we want to get things out as quickly as possible, but we also want to be as accurate as possible. And if we have to sacrifice a little bit of speed for more accuracy, we're going to do that. And yeah, I mean, you know, like y'all have been saying, this really just highlights kind of the, the tough spot that Republicans are in uh, with their own voters a lot of times, you know, trying to, uh, to, to balance, uh, you know, elections integrity and, you know, with these sorts of bills and it kind of backfired on them here. Are we going to see people seizing on this and other aspects of the election process. I mean, what this sort of reminds me of is uh, 2016, Pat McCrory being very upset about late night election returns from Durham County that sort of shifted the tally much towards uh, Roy Cooper. Um, and that ended up being a point of contention, either there wasn't really any evidence to suggest that Durham was anything other than slow. Well, why would McCrory? I mean, Durham is like so blue, you know, I don't like all the McCrory votes weren't hiding in Durham. <laughs> yeah, I mean, th that that's just a, another factor of this. And, and, you know, the the different stages at which different votes get reported. The, this law is basically intending to kind of push it all back so that you get fewer instances like that, but with the early voting coming in late and also some of the, the more urban counties uh, coming in as well. So, so it'll affect us as reporters because we'll, you know, be like, ah, you know, because usually it's that f like that first five minutes after polls close and you're yeah, like, we're Yay, always hitting refresh, refresh, refresh. Well, yeah. well, I'm left wondering, is this actually going to cause our nights to be longer? Because I've heard two different thoughts. Of, yeah, is it just compressed? We get them all at once. And it's like, oh, cool. Now we can call the races. Right. Well, or, or you know, you still have to. W will it affect the order of you count early votes, then you go to election day votes? But will the overall time for all of them end up being the same or similar? We'll have to see. For sure. We'll have to take a quick break. We'll be back with more of the uh, Friday News Roundup in just a moment. Uh, each Friday here on the show, we always take a look back at the week in news from our state and sometimes the broader region, too. And with the primary elections coming next week, we've joined up with the other public radio stations here in North Carolina to make a special program that will preview the primaries. You can listen to it on Due South Tuesday morning at 10 and again right ahead of NPR special election coverage. That's Tuesday night at 7 p.m. And if you don't want to stay up late for the results, like all of us here are going to be, you can tune in to Due South Wednesday morning. Jeff Tiberi and I will be here discussing the results as well as their implications, along with some other reporters here from WUNC and across the state. We'll be right back.
This is Due South. I'm Colin Campbell here with the weekly North Carolina News Roundup. Thanks for joining us. Here in the studio, we've got a panel of political reporters, Don Vaughn, Capitol Bureau Chief at the News and Observer, Bryn Larson, a reporter at the Assembly, Will Doran, reporter at WRAL, and Brian Anderson, a freelance reporter uh, who writes the Anderson Alerts newsletter. Thanks, guys. Uh, voters heading out for the primary here have lots of homework to do this year. Uh, beyond the races for president and governor, it's going to be a long ballot with a lot of candidates to choose from. We're going to take a deeper look now at some of the races that you might have missed. In the state legislature, some incumbent Democrats are under fire from their own party for voting with Republicans on key issues like the state budget, or they've been missing some important votes, and that's kind of caused an issue. Here's Dorian Palmer of the group Young Democrats explaining why his group is endorsing challengers to several veteran lawmakers like Representative Cecil Brockman of High Point. One of one of my biggest concerns was um, when 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 Representative Brockman walked just walked off the floor. He he didn't show up to vote for the for the gun bill. Um, he he was absent with with several other folks, but he um he didn't show up when we really needed him to. He sat out on that on that vote. Bryn Larson from the Assembly, you've been digging into these hotly contested Democratic primaries for the legislature. What's driving this effort to unseat Brockman and several other moderates in the state house? Yeah, Colin. Back in November, um, the Young Democrats of North Carolina, as well as uh, two other affiliated groups for Democrats under or 35 years of age and younger, um, put Brockman and Representative Ray and two, well, three others on alert for voting with um, Republicans on key bills, anything ranging from not standing with Democrats uh, for transgender rights um, to supporting uh disinvestment in public education um, in favor of funding uh, private schools. And so Representative Brockman and Representative Ray are among the uh, Democrats in the state House that have voted with Republicans more than any other Democrat in the legislature. Um, And these representatives have both been in their seats for over a decade. And Brockman himself has largely been uncontested in the primaries during his tenure. Younger Democrats want to see uh, Democrats who are representing them, who show up in the legislature and who stand up for their values. You get any sense whether these uh, challengers have a shot at uh, unseating these guys? What kind of support are they getting, uh, perhaps compared to other cycles where there's been sort of a maybe a long shot challenger who didn't have a whole lot of uh, momentum or funding behind their campaigns? The challengers, James Adams, who is the a previous president of the High Point NAACP, um, as well as Rodney Pierce, who's a known historian and educator, um, have garnered endorsements from people from the Progressive Caucus of the North Carolina Democratic Party, the Young Democrats, um, local officials, and they are they are raising funds. Um, though, of course, unseating incumbent is really challenging in a primary. Yeah, with a lot of other races, as we mentioned, sort of distracting folks from from that. Um, any sense for whether um, if these folks do lose their primaries, is there a better chance for Republicans in the general? I mean, are these sort of swing districts or are these deep blue districts where it's really going to get decided in the primary? These are heavily Democratic districts. Um, there is pretty much no likelihood that a Republican would win in either of these districts. But one thing that we have seen really interesting over the last month is Republicans are funding both Representative Brockman and Representative Ray in their in their primary run. Um, we saw the Carolina Leadership Coalition uh, put out mailers um, 
endorsing Brockman and Ray and sending those out in their community, as well as Republican consultants, the differentiators have um, funded over $80,000 to each of those candidates just this last quarter alone um, to uh, fund radio ads as well as more mailers themselves. It makes their opponents have to spend more money, right, before the primary, which helps Republicans in the general. I wonder if that's a factor in it also. Yeah. And how much of it, I wonder if there's if there's a really close margin in the state house next year between a supermajority and not a supermajority. Republicans have 72 votes right now. That's enough to override vetoes. But if they went down to like 70, are they really hoping these guys are still around that they might be able to convince to vote with Republicans on a veto override? And that maybe is what this why they're jumping into this race. And you, you don't need a Democrat to necessarily cross party lines. You can benefit from them just being absent and nobody in the legislature. You have 170 lawmakers. Brockman was tied for first for the most absences. Uh, If you look at it as a share of voting days, he was out 44 percent of the time on voting days, tied with Marvin Lucas of Cumberland County, who's had health issues, is like 82 years old. And Wren even asked Brockman, can you explain this? And he said he had a num- he had health issues himself, but he wouldn't disclose them. Yeah, Representative Brockman said that he had some serious health considerations. Um, he didn't want to go into them, and I value medical privacy in that regard. Um, but he did tell me that he went to uh, Democratic leaders in the House and um, told them that he would be absent, something that House uh, Minority Leader Robert Reeves said was not true. Yeah, I remember the day of some of these votes, he we was like, I don't know where these guys were. It would be nice if they'd... Uh, come to, to bolster our numbers, but uh, it's definitely some tension within uh, members of the, the Democratic Party. Ren, you've also been looking at a Republican primary that's gotten pretty interesting, the often unnoticed position of insurance commissioner. Why has there been such an intense effort in the GOP to unseat Republican incumbent Mike Causey? This is a really interesting race. Um, Mike Causey, our insurance commissioner, of two terms is literally and figuratively under fire by members of his own party. So to catch the listeners up, um, over this last year, the Republican legislature introduced a bill that would strip away Causey's power as the state fire marshal, um, an effort that initially looked like it it failed in uh, being referred to a committee, but was passed in um, an state budget as well as an independent bill. Um, I spoke with Senator, State Senator um, uh, Danny Britt, and he he found that Mike Causey is uh, a bit inept at his job. He alleged that he's been asleep at the wheel um, and has not been working with the insurance companies and has rather been focused largely on um, handing out big checks, which is something that another state senator, Vicki Sawyer, um, found really insulting that he spends time running around um, fire departments. And those are Republicans, too. Yes. In his own party. And he drives all over the country. And and his observers had some big stories about uh, his uh, travels and his travel partner who drives him around. And takes pictures at fire stations. (laughs) I don't whether or not he's giving them a check. I I think it deserves mentioning that, you know, Mike Kazi has kind of been at odds with people in his party for a few years ever since he wore a wire in an FBI investigation that ended up with the former chair of the state Republican Party getting convicted of a crime uh, and, and the state party's biggest political donor going to prison. Um, so, you know, that obviously did not win him a lot of friends in the Republican Party. Um, and, you know, no one is obviously directly saying that, you know, the uh, 
the efforts to oust him from office are related to that, but I, I think it obviously deserves mention. And then he had that Blue Cross burn. bill, yeah, the insurance oh, yeah. regulation bill that uh, everyone supported except for Mike Causey. I um, feel, yeah, I feel like that was maybe a turn this past session where like they were like, okay, we're coming for you, Causey, but but starting with that. But it's interesting that, you know, when he wore the wire, it was like, I don't care about, it's not a, a party loyalty partisan thing. It's what he thought was the right thing to do, you know, at the time. And yeah, that's what Brockman thought, too. But your party will come for you, you know, sometimes even harder than the opposition party. Well, l- let's say Kazi wins his primary, not not a hard assumption to make, uh, and advances to the general election. And David Wheeler, he runs the American Muckrakers Pack. He's worked to oust uh, Lauren Boebert uh, and successfully helped oust Madison Cawthorn over in the Asheville mm-hmm. area. And whether or not he wins this primary against Natasha Marcus, who is the favorite uh, to win for insurance yeah, commissioner in the Democratic the Charlotte side, area. Wheeler is going to have involvement. He's called Kazi uh, rate, rate Hike Mike and has had some success in the past with opposition research. So that'll be something to watch for as well. Yeah, Ren, who's the other candidates in the Republican primary? Do they seem like they've got a lot of backing? There's, there's I guess, two different folks who are trying to be the one to beat Kazi. Sure. Um, There is one young uh, there's a man named Andrew Marcus who is out of Chapel Hill and he is totally new to the politics scene, but incredibly uh, experienced with insurance um, from the public and private sector. He is a former state uh, attorney and um, deputy director for Florida's Department of Insurance or its equivalent. Um, He's also a private. He was a prosecutor. Um, and is now working as a volunteer firefighter um, while completing his training. Um, He's garnered support from a a large number of Republicans in the state Senate. He has a $6,400 contribution from uh, Majority Whip Jim Perry, um, as well as has the support of uh, Senator Danny Britt and Senator Sawyer. Uh, On another contender, a challenger, is uh, Robert Brawley, a two-decade veteran of our state legislature um, and an insurance agent himself. And he, he's he been out touring. He's got a lot of name recognition, has smaller financial support and contributions. But um, these, these two individuals have both said that they are not taking donations from insurance companies, whereas Commissioner Causey has $6,400 $6, contributions from whether it's Allstate or Blue Cross uh, Blue Shield of North Carolina and, addition, and several other companies. This is the North Carolina News Roundup here on Due South. I'm Colin Campbell in for Jeff Tabiri. Another Republican battle royale of sorts has been in the Triad 6th Congressional District. Uh, Brian, you've been reporting on this race. Uh, it's something of a, a hot mess, I think, from uh, the outside. What, what's going on with that race? Yeah, you can't have expletives over radio, but this is a cluster of a race. It's just an absolute mess. You have six different candidates in this Greensboro area district. Uh, former Congressman Mark Walker, Republican Bo Hines. Uh, you have Addison McDowell, a lobbyist. You have former High Point Mayor Jay Wagner. Uh, Army veteran Christian Castelli and uh, plastic surgeon Mary Ann Contogianis. Of those six, really, you have a three to four person race. And those three to four people are just constantly attacking each other. And and let's lay the groundwork. Walker, high name ID. Former congressman was somewhat in leadership in Republican circles when he served in Congress. Far and away the best retail politicker in the race. You have Bo Hines. He's got money on his side. He's got Club for Growth, which is a big, important super PAC in D.C. 
And then you have Addison McDowell, who has the most coveted endorsement any Republican could hope in Donald Trump, who, by the way, is coming to Greensboro a block away from his district tomorrow. So I imagine we'll see McDowell on stage with Trump this weekend. For sure. That's the expectation. I figure that's why Trump's coming, right? Because Don Jr. is the, the reason he got the, of the rally. Yeah. And yeah. maybe an official endorsement for Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson, which he's kind of endorsed, but not fully endorsed. Right. right. But yeah, back yeah. to the, the sixth district. I mean. And Christian Castelli, the interesting thing about him is he was on the ballot in 2022 against Kathy Manning and 32 percent of voters in that 2022 district are now in this newly drawn district. Whereas if you look at Walker, that's 14%. So you have stronger name ID for Castelli. So this is just a lot of different factors. And anyone who says there's a clear front runner, you don't understand this race because it's a mess. Yeah, exactly. We've got allegations of in- fake endorsements, endorsements being rescinded, uh, super PACs are involved, right? It's it's a lot. AI, rescinded endorsements, outside money, you name it. Yeah, this race seems to have it all. Will, what else are you watching on the uh, primary uh, sort of down ballot races this time around? Oh, well, I mean, if we're, you know, sticking on the congressional topic, uh, the the first district, which covers uh, northeastern North Carolina, is really interesting. That's uh, Democrat uh, Don Davis represents that right now. There's two Republicans who are trying to to take him on. You got Sandy Smith and Lori Buck out. Um, Sandy Smith has been the GOP nominee the last two elections. Uh, She has lost both of those. She has a, a very colorful history. We'll say, and uh, it seems that the GOP establishment is uh, a bit tired of having her on the ballot and wants a different choice. Uh, the uh, you know obviously the the party can't officially take sides in the primary, but uh, a lot of uh, you know powerful people seem to be uh, backing Lori Buck out, and that's notable because that is the only competitive district in the state for the general election. Every every other Demo- every other district is going to either go Republican or go Democrat. This is the only one that could potentially go either way in November. So it really matters who wins the primary in terms of are you going to have a good shot at winning. Yeah, and with Sandy Smith's past results, I mean, is that sort of the reason Republicans are thinking, well, wait, maybe we have somebody else with a little bit less oppo baggage uh, that could come out in the general um, if we want to win this seat and get, I mean, this is the difference between uh, 10 Republican seats, right, and 11 Republican seats in our 14-member congressional delegation. And that's, like you say, the only swing district. I mean, I, I talked to Rocky Mount Mayor Sandy Robertson, who was running against Sandy Smith last election cycle. Smith narrowly surpassed that 30% threshold needed to win the nomination outright. And Robertson described to me this this sort of effort behind the scenes to kind of unite the party around one person against Smith, because the thought is Trump plus money equals 30 percent. Does it equal 51 percent? That's the test case. Yeah, and the Smith-Robertson was multiple other Republican candidates, right? Right. And so now you have just a one on one matchup between Smith and Buckout. And I've talked to both of them. Their messaging is very, very similar. Whoever wins this primary is going to have a hard pivot to message to moderates. For sure. You, you showed that they um, both think about, uh, what was it, an ice cream flavor? Oh, yeah. They're I, like, I, they're I, in tandem on everything. Yeah, I asked each one of them separate interviews. I said, uh, can you tell me one thing you agree with Joe Biden on? Because, you know, you're trying to win in the swingiest congressional district. And one says uh, his ice cream flavors. And the other one gives a nearly identical answer. Unprompted. Weird. And then, yeah, they're both sort of slinging mud. I mean, you, we, we talked about Sandy Smith's history a little bit, but you, Brian, you looked into this and Buckout has a few um, things on her record that uh, are likely to come up in a general election if she wins. Yeah, she had a DUI that got dropped down to a reckless driving charge. And that's the biggest thing that Smith is is really hammering home. The other interesting thing that Smith is messaging is Buckout moved to the state in 2021 in a $2.7 million home over near the Outer Banks. Um, and 
trying to portray her as out of touch, elitist. Mind you, you'll have to ignore the fact that Sandy Smith was from California as well. Uh, but this is a, a race with a lot of mudslinging from Smith, but Buckout isn't really going that far. She's she's made some comments about uh, domestic violence allegations that Smith has had from the last election cycle that Sandy Robertson really unearthed. Uh, but Buckout says she's not really interested in the mudslinging. And you also don't want to amplify Smith if you have a million dollars you're pouring into your own race and can just rely on that type of message. Yeah, and trying to introduce herself to folks. Uh, one of the races we haven't gotten to yet, uh, partly because it's perhaps less exciting than these ones we've been talking about, is the governor's race, uh, where it seems pretty likely that Attorney General Josh Stein and Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson are on track to secure their party's nominations. Uh, we got some new fundraising numbers this week in that race. Uh, what, what's the latest there? Uh, I think, Brian, you had some uh, tracking some of those campaign finance reports that just came in. Yeah, Josh Stein has three times the cash on hand that Mark Robinson does. That's the biggest thing. And keep in mind, you can also have support from other entities like the governor can help Stein. Other people can help Stein. But it's a big money gap there. The numbers have come in for the attorney general's race. And uh, Jeff Jackson, I believe, has more cash on hand now than Dan Bishop. That's one to, to watch. Uh, Lieutenant governor's race, Rachel Hunt, is doing well financially. Seth Woodall has a lot of cash on hand, but he's self-financing his campaign. So in these core races, Democrats have a fundraising advantage, but money is no guarantee of electoral success in the end. Don, the governor's race was the topic of one of your stories mm -hmm. this week. What are things looking like as we come out of the primary season um, and start the general election officially? Gosh, it's uh, my lead on that story was buckle up. And as I was writing it, that was kind of my working headline. And it was sort of a message to myself, too, not just readers, because of what's going to happen. So much of the uh, gubernatorial race is tied to the presidential race. And the more and more people I talked to about it, the more and more that became apparent, more than issues. Abortion, obviously, is going to be a big issue. Democrats will talk about. Republicans will talk about immigration. But immigration isn't as much a state issue as a national one. Uh, but that also means that it's tied to to Biden, Biden's handling of it. What do you think party wise? And then um, Trump on the other side and what could change with abortion? And then the personalities of Stein and Robinson, assuming that it's them that advance and all points, you know, everything points to that they will. And just the complete contrast in, in who they are as people is going to be a factor, too. So North Carolina gets all the attention for a reason. The margins are so small. Trump got North Carolina voters by 1.3 percent, I believe it was, last election. So it could be where, where North Carolina voters pick Trump, which Republicans need to win the White House, but then they pick Stein for governor. It's probably less likely it's going to be a Biden-Robinson. Yeah, that uh, seems to be our, our state of ticket splitters. Um, and as Brian alluded to, lots of money in this race. So I assume we can expect a ton of uh, attack ads coming our way in the uh, uh, coming months and pretty ugly, I would think, overall, right? Yeah, I mean, Mark Robinson's running a campaign right now not to lose. He's not talking to many news outlets. He's being very careful with his messaging. Stein's not running a primary campaign. He's running a general election campaign. Yeah, with his none of these guys really talk about their opponents at all, right? <laughs> In the primary, at least. They're, 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 they're talking about each other at this point. Right. Yeah, all Stein's speeches have just been about Robinson. And I don't think he's, no, he definitely hasn't criticized Mike Morgan at all. Yeah, the Supreme Court justice, yeah. former Supreme Court justice running yeah. against Morgan him. Morgan has, has criticized Stein because of like a big reason with Stein having the lead is he got in so early, he had the support so early, had the money so early, and Morgan has just been, you know, uphill battle his campaign. 
We're listening to Due South. I'm Colin Campbell. We've got to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more of our Friday News Roundup here on WUNC. This is Due South. I'm Colin Campbell in for Jeff Tiberi with our Friday North Carolina News Roundup. If you turn on your TV or even YouTube in North Carolina right now, it's pretty likely that you're getting inundated with campaign advertisements, and a lot of them are pretty incendiary, like this one. I didn't make the mess in D.C., but I'm going to go clean it up. No more open borders, high inflation, and woke garbage. I'm John Bradford. I approve this message because it's time to clean up the liberal mess in Washington. Don Vaughn reports on politics for the News and Observer. Don, you had this story this week about a lot of the similarities in Republican campaign messaging, like the one we just heard from John Bradford uh, here in the state. A lot of it seems to be about the term wokeness. Uh, what's all that all about? It's um, the headline was, "What does that even mean?" If you can hear my tone in that, because it's it's a it's a dog whistle. NC Central University here in Durham, Professor Jarvis Hall. That's that's what he said it is. It's a way of saying the other. And they're not, you know, they're out of touch. They're elitist. They're this and that. Um, and State Senator Nally Murdoch, also Durham uh, Democrat, said, you know, it's obviously goes without saying. This is a, a, a phrase, you know, stay woke that's been in the in the black community for a long time. So that's where it, the origin is. And it is a lot basically means any sort of di- diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives kind of beyond that. Uh, conservatives will use it to be anything LGBTQ because, you know, uh, Speaker Moore has used the term woke. I'm like, well, what is he talking about? And maybe it's, you know, it's the trans anti-transgender bills. It also has to do with ESG. CRT was the big buzzword for a while. Now they've moved on to DEI and woke is sort of this catch all, you know, for all of it. Republican uh, House Caucus Director Stephen Wiley told me that it's basically today's politically correct, where politically correct used to be a way of just saying something, you know, that wasn't offensive to whoever you're describing. And then it became just a parody. There was a movie with David Spade called PCU. It got so played out, I guess they had to come up with a different term, right? So, I mean, it's like cancel culture is like, you know, eventually like woke agenda will be canceled, I'm sure. So what's the next term? (laughs) Oh, goodness. Who knows? (laughs) Only a matter of time, right? (laughs) Yeah, it's just it's signaling. It's, you know, and not everybody use it. It was to the point when I first thought about doing that sidebar story, I was like, was there some sort of where they said, hey, everybody in your primary, put this in your advertising? It turns out they are not like told, but it's what they think will play to some their Some consultant base. has told them that like that yeah. can be. And is that sort of the thinking is that like you're going to insert whatever, whether it's critical race theory or DEI efforts, that voters are just going to think about whatever one example really bothers them when they hear woke and that prevents the candidates from having to really like go after a specific policy? Well, I don't know how many African-American voters they're going to bring in by making fun of the phrase woke and saying like they're definitely against anything that has to do with diversity. So it's obviously playing to people that don't like those things or or don't like them in policy, at least. But not not all Republicans are doing it. I think it's just, you know, if you probably look at their voting district and if they're trying to win or not, are they going to use that phrase in the general? Probably not. Yeah, I mean, are we going to see this or there's going to be sort of a pivot messaging towards the general, particularly if it's a, a swingy district and not one where we're more or less deciding a, a Republican member of Congress in the, the primary? Well, there's only one swing congressional district, and that's the first district over in eastern North Carolina with Sandy Smith and Lori Buckout, who whoever comes out of that's going to have a very, very hard pivot 
to a general election audience. Maybe Chuck Chuck Edwards doesn't use that type of language generally. He's more mild mannered. That would yeah, be the congressman only... from the Asheville area, Western North Carolina. Yeah, that's the only other moderately competitive district. Everyone else, their messaging in the primary can effectively be their messaging in the general. And they may not even need to run the ads right by the time they get yeah, out. Yeah, why primary. waste money? <laughs> But Will Doran from uh, WRAL, you had a story about this weird kind of spoof campaign that popped up this week, uh, an ad and a website against the Republican candidate for governor, Mark Robinson. What on earth was happening with that? Yeah, if you're driving around the state uh, or uh, on your computer, you may see a billboards or a website for Mark Rottenson, uh, which is a fake political candidate. Um, it Looks a whole lot like Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson. With just a funny mustache and a hat or something, right? Yeah, with like a 1920s-style straw hat and like cartoonish villain mustache photoshopped onto him. And the whole website is just that type of humor. Just very silly, irreverent. Um, and it it's it's an attempt to use satire um, to to engage voters who maybe aren't really paying attention to the race. Uh, this is according to Todd Stiefel, who's the Democratic activist from Raleigh, who is behind this effort. Um, I spoke with him about this, and he said he's been thinking about this for a year or so, even longer. The Basically, uh, political comedy is what he calls it. You know, if you make politics more entertaining for people, they're more likely to tune in. And he says, look, yes, I'm putting all this stuff out here, you know, in the waning days of the primary, I don't expect to actually really influence any Republican primary voters with this. Like that's that's not the goal here. The goal is to to catch the attention of those people who are undecided who they're going to vote for in November or undecided if they're maybe even going to vote at all and kind of convince them that, hey, this person is too extreme. We need to vote against them. There's a lot of discussion about whether this is effectively satire or this should be lumped in with sort of the like deep fake misinformation that we're seeing this primary cycle. I mean, what what did uh, the the creator of this website have to say for himself for that? And what's been the reaction from the the actual candidates themselves? Real Mark Robinson, not Mark Rottenson or whatever. Right. Yes. The real Mark Robinson. I spoke with his campaign. They call this a Democrat smear campaign and point out correctly that this uses not entirely real quotes. You know, the, the website does have some real quotes from Mark Robinson. It also has multiple fake quotes. Um, and audio know, clips, right, from a fake book that this candidate allegedly wrote. Exactly. And it uses AI to kind of deep fake something that mimics Mark Robinson's voice. It sounds pretty close. It's, it's you know, if, if you've listened to a lot of Mark Robinson's speeches, you could probably tell that, you know, it, it's not him, but it's really close. Um, and... You know, I mean, this is really controversial. We're dealing with this in plenty of campaigns. You have the kind of the rise of AI for misinformation. And I, and I you know, kind of tried to corner him on this, like, hey, like, you know, you're using fake quotes, you're using AI. Like, this seems to be, you know, a lot of pretty controversial, you know, things you're doing here. And he said, look, this is clearly satire. You know, you can't log on to this website and see this guy in this silly straw hat. I think that's the real guy and, running for governor. I think this is the real guy running for governor. You know, on the same page with all the AI clips of the supposed fake memoir, it also, you know, uh, says that the memoir has been reviewed by the, the ghost of the Unabomber. And it has a book review from him. So, like, it, there's a lot of stuff that makes it pretty clear that it is fake, that it's a joke. Um, and, and that's his defense. Like, look, no one could actually see this and think it's serious. This is just it's just funny is the goal. And uh, is this like an organized group or is this just one guy who puts some money behind a website and some, you know, odd AI voiceovers? I mean, it, it's a really clean website. Honestly, it looks better than a lot of 
websites for real actual political campaigns that we've seen this year. Uh, there's clearly a lot of money that's been put into it. He has a team working for him, but I, I think it's mostly this one donor who's funding it. Um, but it's actually gotten some pushback from uh, Josh Stein's campaign as well. Uh, you know, obviously Stein rarely has, uh, you know, reason to agree with Mark Robinson on things. But uh, on this case, he he's in lockstep in opposing this. He says, you know, he's been fighting against AI scams as attorney general and and doesn't like this either. Now, Stein has also taken a lot of money himself from Todd Stiefel, who is the activist behind this website. So is he going to give that money back in some sort of protest? Uh, we haven't seen that yet, but maybe. And there was another weird campaign ad story I saw this week, a super PAC that used artificial intelligence to recreate a candidate's voice, Congressman Mark Walker, with this script that was played over an actual video of Walker where he claims that he's lying. And it basically trying to pretend it's this secret leaked audio of, uh, you know, an actual conversation where Walker admits that, you know, he's uh, being untruthful about about various things. Uh, do you all see deep fakes and AI as a potential factor in people's impression of candidates throughout this cycle? Are we is this just the opening act of this? Uh, Ren, do you think we're going to see some more of this? I mean, we have a we have a contentious primary for a few different positions. We have a, a federal election coming up. I have no reason not to believe that there's going to be more deep fakes. This is a really inexpensive tool for people to harness, um, and it can be really dangerous. It, here, here's the one thing I do grapple with as a reporter. For, for the Mark Walker example there, this was a video produced by First Freedoms Foundation. I took a screenshot of it the next day, and the video itself, if you go to the tweet from the group that they put out there, it had like 176 views over 24 hours. If you looked at Mark Walker sharing it, it got far more traction because he had a wider following. So he shared that message. Reporters latch onto it. It it goes far beyond its original target when you have the candidate who it's against taking the bait. And in so many ways, it's the attention is the goal. And so it's hard as a reporter to balance how do we not give it attention, but how do we also call out something that is objectively so controversial. Yeah, is there a way to debunk it without amplifying a message that wasn't getting to that many people to start with, right? And there's no great answers. Yeah, I mean, we had that discussion even just planning the show. is like, do we want to play that Mark Walker, fake Mark Walker clip, or would that be just giving it more of an audience? And I think we decided, yeah, let's let's not do that because, you know, there were some false statements made in there attributed to fake Mark Walker that we don't necessarily need to air, but it's important, I think, to, to have this discussion uh, about whether we report on this stuff in the future. Any other thoughts on that? I think audio is so different, too. Than, and I think that's the thing with the Mark Robinson parody, is that you can go to the website and it's clearly a parody. But if you're going, he said this on audio and it's fake, then there's also real things he said that you hear in audio. We're all, everyone listening to this show right now, you know, and so you want to be able to trust what you hear. So it's, uh, I feel like the misinformation, disinformation, it's, it's pretty problematic looking ahead. I'm Colin Campbell. This is the North Carolina News Roundup from Due South, and you're hearing it here on WUNC, North Carolina Public Radio. Uh, turning a little bit away from politics in our final minutes here, on this day in North Carolina history, March 1st in 1980, that's 40 years ago 
those of you counting at home, it feels like it ought to be less than 40 years ago. Uh, there was the snowstorm of the century here in eastern North Carolina, heavy snow across the entire state and near blizzard conditions in the east. Uh, at least 13 people died from the storm. Um, but uh, no snow here. And any of you guys hoping that we might get a little bit more before March is out or we all feel like we're done with winter at this point? Oh, what if it snows on the primary day? Yeah, you know, that happened in what? Uh, New York had a congressional primary or a, a race with that George Santos seat and that had a big impact on turnout. But we deserve uh, one snow at least. Yeah, Come my on. five-year-old has been very disappointed by the lack of snow. And, and anybody who knows me knows my disdain for my home state of of California. I will say the one redeeming quality is the weather, and I will not be cheering for Team Snow. My two-year-old dog caught his first snowflakes um, in Asheville this weekend, and so I am on Team Snow. Oh, yeah, dogs in snow is so fun to watch. Yeah, my no, dog, Salty, would probably want it to snow. I'll happily yeah. watch people in snow or dogs or animals in snow. Yeah, and I guess the mountains <laughs> have gotten some if you're fortunate enough to live in the higher elevations this year. But down here in the Triangle, we're at least, I guess, two years out from our, our last snow, much less a, a giant snowstorm of the century, which feels like ancient history at, at this point. Uh, but this year, we are held into a, a mild weather weekend this weekend, and we're gearing up for a rivalry game in basketball tomorrow, uh, tomorrow UNC. I keep wanting to say WUNC and NC State play in men's basketball. We're a week away from another Duke-UNC matchup and just two weeks out from the ACC tournament and full-on March Madness of the sports kind, not the political kind, uh, which seems like a potential recipe for more of this court storming that we've been seeing. That's a practice that made headlines last week when a Duke University basketball player got injured as a jubilant Wake Forest fans were running onto the court. Uh, do y'all think there's a need for the teams and leagues to make some new rules on this? Is this something that's uh, perhaps getting a little bit out of hand? You could delay like a, like 30 seconds and let the players get off the court. I think you could still have the fun of a, of a court storming and just chill out for a few seconds and let them get out of the way. Yeah, I, I think I, I completely agree. It's a great tradition in, in college sports. I, I've stormed a court before. Um, I don't know if anyone else on the panel has. Did uh, you injure did you any anybody? I, I, I did say. not, although it was it was for uh, defeating Duke. Uh, I think that's a, a common thread here. Yeah, uh, <laughs> UNC fans, one thing to have Wake Forest fans around Duke players, but UNC fans around Duke players, that could be even worse. Yeah, my dad gave me, the, the, one of my favorite lines my dad ever said was, there's nothing smart about being stupid. So if you're going to storm a court, please avoid players and preferably wait until the buzzer rings even as well. There were people storming the court for the Duke game even before the clock hit zero. So just tighter security, more time delay. I'm on. I'm with Don and Will on that one. I mean, as a Duke fan, I'll say like, oh, they can't help themselves because they never beat Duke, so they're so excited when it happens. <laughs> yeah. So. The I only way to beat Duke is injuring their players, right? I think what the event made clear, though, is there is always going to be the propensity for injury in these events. And so if you care about whether it's your team, um, you don't have to care about the other team. If you care about your team not being injured, um, there might be a need for regulation. Yeah, I mean, is there anything they really can do from a security standpoint if you have all these fans suddenly come onto the court? I mean, even if you had more security than they typically have, would, would that be enough to stop them? Or do you have to start taking these kids to honor court or something? I think you could do something about, like, like the slight delay or something. But I hope it's not one of these things where, like, someone screws up and ruins it for everybody. Like, the whole class doesn't need to get punished because of the one kid. That's what I hope doesn't happen. Yeah, and we're used to these, you know, celebrations in this area. Um, obviously, with the Duke-UNC game coming up, there could be another storming of Franklin Street, and usually the players are not there for that because they're uh, still back at the the arena, but uh, certainly uh, a lot of people and, you know, jumping bonfires and things like that. I've, I've done my share of that in the past. Will, I don't know if you uh, did any of that when, when you were at <laughs> UNC, but... I, I was a little disappointed, actually, this year after, uh, after UNC beat Duke in their first matchup this year. There didn't seem to be a lot of bonfires on Franklin Street. <laughs> 
Um, the kids are too safe these days. Yeah, there's, you know, they actually... A Duke player gets injured. Will's take is that <laughs> basketball's too safe. Well, all of that is so regulated. Because I remember when I covered Durham, it would be like, oh, it's the game. Let's have the permit and we're going to burn this or whatever. And it's like, uh, it's all orchestrated. It takes a little bit of the fun out of it. But if nobody gets burned, that's good. I mean, at least on the Duke. And like, I mean, Franklin Street is like pretty regulated, too. It's controlled chaos, which you can have fun with basic safety parameters, I think. Yeah, any other uh, games you guys are watching in the, the days to come? No, but I think it's worth uh, noting that, uh, you know, sports betting is going to be here in less than two weeks. Uh, March 11th, I believe, is the, the go-live date for that, just in time for the, the March Madness. And, you know, uh, I think that'll be a, a big change for a lot of people. And, you know, we've we've been covering that closely. Um, I think probably all of us at this table yeah. have, and it's... It's going to be uh, a very interesting change. For and short term, you're headed money, to the money, Trump money. rally. Yeah, you, something we may not be doing any betting at. Hopefully, is the the Trump rally on Saturday. Will you're you're headed to that? So, uh, are you expecting any court storming there, or is that going to be you know a more tame event than perhaps we've seen at Trump rallies in you the know, past? I'm not expecting any court storming, but you never know. Uh, is it the Greensboro Coliseum complex? I don't know if it's actually where the ACC tournament has been played, or if it's another smaller facility within that that particular <laughs> part of Greensboro. Yeah, maybe people will be in in the spirit uh, in honor of the ACC tournament. All right. Well, thanks so much for our panelists to uh, joining the conversation this week. Don Vaughn is Capitol Bureau Chief for the News and Observer. Will Doran reports on politics for WRAL. Ren Larson's a reporter from the Assembly. And freelance journalist Brian Anderson has been with us as well. This has been the North Carolina News Roundup here on Due South. Jeff Tabiri and Leonida Inge are our show's co-hosts, and they'll be back with you next week. Aaron Kiever is the executive producer of Due South. Our producers are Stacia Brown, Cole Del Charco, and Rachel McCarthy. Denarius Thomas is our technical director. Thanks so much for listening here to North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. If you miss our show, which comes out every weekday, you can catch up with old episodes at WUNC.org or on your favorite podcast app. Just look for DUE South. I'm Colin Campbell, Capitol Bureau Chief for WUNC. Have a great weekend.